Gateway, as we make our way to the teaching and continue to worship through the Word, a couple of housekeeping points, announcements, if you will. In just a couple weeks' time, on March 28, we will be having our annual members meeting. And Lord willing, we will be able to have that available in this space and in an online way so that you can uh, join us. Either that's going to be on YouTube or Church Center, uh, that's church.dsm.online.church, online.dsm.church. Gosh, these would be the things I ought to remember, nevertheless. <laughs> Or we are hopeful to have that available in that space. We will let you know ASAP uh, where that will be available. And if you want to come in person, it will be immediately following our gathering at the Come and Go Theater right downtown. And so I just invite you to that. If uh, you consider yourself to be a part of Gateway or you're trying to figure out, is this a place where I want to be? We'll be talking about our future as a community in the city for the city and what that looks like. Second is the week following. Because if you didn't know, March 28th starts Holy Week. That is Palm Sunday. And therefore, the conclusion of that Holy Week, the climax of the Christian story, Resurrection Sunday. We'll be concluding the gospel according to Mark in the resurrection text in Mark 16 with Easter. And in typical Mark and fashion, it will be an anti-Easter. It's this kind of anticlimactic moment. I won't give away too much. I just want to encourage you, and this is all invitation. And it might feel counterintuitive. This is a beautiful time to invite. Think about your colleagues, your friends, your, your goodness sakes, like your extended relatives. <laughs> this has been a hard year for many. For some who are introverted and uh, are, uh, they love this season, or at least they started out loving it, even there, like there has been pains that have come up. And so I just want to say, this is a space of invitation. And I want to encourage you, whether that be online with us or in person to come. Either way, we would just ask that you register. You can do that on uh, the Church Center app, or you can go to thegatewaychurch.com and register there. So those are, those are the announcements. Those are the little housekeeping things. Now let us continue. Uh, flip or tap your way on over to Mark 15. We're going to pick up in verse 16. And as you're making your way there, uh, these words come to us from uh, early 20th century poet and novelist Rainier Rilke. We must not portray you in king's robes. You drifting mist that brought forth the morning. Once again, from the old paint boxes, we take the same gold for scepter and crown that has disguised you through the ages. Piously, we produce our images of you till they stand around you like a thousand walls. And when our hearts would simply open, our fervent hands hide you. Rainier, uh, Rainier Maria, Rilke, he wrote these words under the persona of a Russian monk, at really at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, in a work called Love Poems to God. This book of ours is the collection. And these words, at least to me, they confess one of my strongest compulsions in my apprenticeship to Jesus, in my life following Jesus, namely to reimagine Jesus 
as something other than how he presents himself. And just listen again to this, this line. This is what um, it captured my imagination and really um, kind of stopped me in my tracks. Piously we produce our images of you till they stand around you like a thousand walls. Let that, let that visual image kind of populate in your mind. There's Jesus and us with our gold-tipped paintbrushes, paint scepter and crown all around Jesus, disguising who he really is, a thousand walls. In other words, our visions of Jesus may be the very things, the very walls standing in the way of the real Jesus, where in the Christian tradition we say life resides. Unfortunately, today we come to the cross, and that may seem like an odd turn of phrase, fortunate and cross. Well, yes, it is true. Fortunately, we come to the cross in the gospel according to Mark today because the cross rightly orders our vision of Jesus. The cross is where all of those disguised iterations of Jesus can die so that the true life of Jesus might rise. You know, maybe this sounds a bit heavy, and, and maybe it even comes as a shock to you, maybe not, but the cross is one of the most potent, and I dare say easiest places where we reimagine Jesus, where we disguise him and wall him off. Because the cross is in so many senses an offense. And this can happen in a myriad of ways. It, it certainly, and just to name two prominent ways, we wall off Jesus when the cross is sensationalized, and we wall off Jesus when the cross is sentimentalized. When sensationalized, the cross quickly becomes this emotional prop and it elicits guilt and sadness and shame and anger and remorse, like this full range of emotions. And most of us have experienced this sensationalizing of the cross. This is the cross as a sort of Mel Gibson-inspired drama. Uh, this is the place where God's love and your sin collide so that you can, quote, accept Him into your heart. And it's not that those little things, what we know as the four spiritual laws, are necessarily untrue. It's rather that we just have to ask, is this what we encounter in Mark? Do we encounter a spectacle at the cross? And when the cross is sentimentalized, it's almost the opposite. All of the drama of the cross is drained out. The cross is sanitized and it really it feels like we can control it. It's void of power. I mean, I just think about the crosses littered across the American landscape. I mean, that's the world and the space we're situated in. We see it on church steeples as an icon that doesn't really mean a lot because we also see it on earrings, which apparently are, are like fashionable or something. We see it on, on necklaces and tattooed on bodies and bedazzling t-shirts. And I'm not, I'm not trying to shame the iconography of the cross or somebody who's wearing a cross as jewelry or has it tattooed on their body. I have a giant cross tattooed on me. So I'm not, I'm not trying to shame it. Rather, my point is that when the cross is sentimentalized, it's pulled away from its sobering reality. For Jesus and his disciples, and really anybody who's living under Roman rule in the first century, the cross was neither sensational nor was it sentimental. 
You see, the cross, it was the pinnacle of shame and humiliation. So shameful was the cross in Rome's honor and shame society, and and that honor and shame thing, just to tease that out for a moment, um, this functions on the principle of limited good. So think about a scale. There is only so much honor to be had, only so much good to be had. So if you have honor, shame goes down. But at the cross, honor is depleted and shame is at its highest. So shameful is the cross in a Roman society that if you were a Roman citizen, it was illegal for you to be crucified. That is the amount of intense shame that it carried. Neither sensational nor sentimental, but a sobering reality. It was literally the worst way to die. And today we come to a cross-shaped Messiah. And I know that this, the content of our passage is um, heavy, and so I just want to invite you, wherever you are at in this moment, to be open to how the Spirit, through the living Word, would draw you to Jesus. So what I'm going to do is I just want to pray, invite the Spirit to come, um, rather for us to show up to the Spirit, um, And then just work our way, plot our way through the passage, turning back to consider the cross. And so if you would just bow your heart in a posture of prayer with me now. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, community of love, we know and call God. We thank you that you are here, that you are present to us, that you are good. Thank you, Lord, that it, even in, in passages like this where we see, where we just see the tyranny of sin leading to death, that even in those spaces, we can encounter your grace. So I just pray that in this time, you would help us to receive the way of Jesus, to receive the way of the cross, not sensationalizing it, not sentimentalizing it, but with you at our side, your love engulfing us and filling us, that we would move toward the sobering reality of the cross so that we might move with you into life. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray, would you stand in my body and think with my mind and speak with my lips. Amen. Mark 15, starting in verse 16, this is what we read. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace that is the praetorium and called together the whole company of soldiers. So the praetorium is essentially the barracks uh, for the soldiers who came with Pilate into Jerusalem for the Passover. If you recall that, even um, from way, way back in chapter 11, there's this um, subversive entry that Jesus has, and it's likely that uh, Pilate has a show of force. He, he comes in with a triumphal entry and soldiers in tow, so there they all are. This is not a gracious space, the praetorium, this batal- like where the battalion of soldiers would gather together in the barracks. These men are hardened by war and death. And to fill out the scene a bit more, this whole company that we see here, they called together the whole company. This is either those who are on duty during that um, 
that early morning, late night watch, 10 to 20 people, or it is indeed the whole company, a battalion, 600 soldiers. Either way, this is how they approach Jesus, verse 17. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put on his clothes, and led him out to crucify him. Commenting on this passage, New Testament scholar Tom Wright points out that these men are effectively peacekeeping troops in the region. They're sent with the Roman governor Pilate to go in and basically keep rioters at bay. Remember, this Israel is an occupied space under the thumb of Roman rule at the time. And so there these peacekeeping troops stand to keep riots at bay during this Passover where hundreds of thousands of Israelites would come back for this pilgrimage festival. But their actions feel like the exact opposite of peace when we read that account. And often in war-torn spaces, troops are deployed to help create stability, to facilitate peace in a region. And though they are, in some sense, even today, there to like, create peace and stability, they're felt as a as a threat, they're seen as a threat, they're experienced as that by those who are indigenous to the space, and so they're often attacked and maligned and hated just by virtue of their presence. And so when violence inevitably breaks out, even in context today, especially in context today, and these troops, these peacekeeping troops are called upon to keep the peace, and hopefully doing it without violence, <laughs> uh, the antagonists of the violence are imprisoned and often in those spaces without the watchful eye of journalists and the media and with little to no accountability, these supposed peacekeeping troops allow their anger to be poured out on these antagonists. These antagonists become like a symbol of all of their pent-up aggression. We see reports coming out of this, of, of soldiers being found out for having brutally interrogated a, uh, an antagonist in some sort of skirmish. Otherwise, they're, they're torturing these people. And this is what we encounter here. The disdain of these Roman soldiers that they have for Israel, it is unleashed on Jesus. Just look again at verse 19, again and again. And I'm reading in the NIV there, and the, and the NIV provides those words because the, the Greek word there, to strike, it has this sense of ongoing action. And we don't know, is it every soldier who's there does it, they get their fill-in, or is it one without the other? We don't know, but again and again, this ongoing action is taking place. And they don't simply strike Jesus once and then move on. It's this ongoing assault. It, it draws us into this imagery of Isaiah 50 where Mark is kind of pulling our attention. We read this in Isaiah 56. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And we've seen throughout the gospel according to Mark that this is indeed coming and yet it, nevertheless, it is brutal. This is a gruesome scene. 
But what these soldiers don't know is that their actions, their their mockery itself, it serves as Jesus' procession to his cross-shaped throne. Because this place, the cross, this place of disgrace, it reveals Jesus as the king of God's upside-down kingdom, where indeed the last are first. There's no gold scepter there or crown to disguise Jesus. Instead, there is a crown of thorns in a purple robe, the acclamation of the soldiers. You see, for a Caesar to be established, for a new king or a son of God in the Roman language to be established, there had to be the acclamation of the soldiers. And so this, this mockery, hail king of the Jews, which is meant to deride Jesus, is actually the acclamation of his true identity. They are saying what is true and, in fact, the truest thing about Jesus. But they don't understand the contours of God's kingdom, that it's upside down. Speaking to this again, and to write, it says, The whole point of the Gospels, and therefore the Gospel according to Mark, is that the coming of God's kingdom on earth as in heaven is precisely not the imposition of an alien and dehumanizing tyranny which is what we encounter with Rome and these Roman soldiers in the scene, but rather the confrontation of alien and dehumanizing tyrannies with the news of God, the God recognized in Jesus who is radically different from them all and whose in-breaking justice aims at rescuing and restoring genuine humanness. See, this is Jesus' movement toward the cross to show what true humanity looks like, what it is to stand where we will not stand. And then we read this in verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and just a, a quick note, like, who are these guys? We've not seen them before. We won't see them after. Well, this is a, a literary device that's used in um, the, the genre of literature that Mark is. It's a bios. And it's not less than that. It is certainly more than that. But it is this biography of Jesus's life and ministry. And sometimes you would see nested within those this thing where there would be contemporaries that you could go and seek out. This is like a footnote of sorts in the style of writing Mark's employing. And so it's likely that commentators speculate that Alexander and Rufus were a part of the Jesus movement. Was Simon? We don't really know. And yet it makes the most sense to think that Mark's note here is that these people are known to his audience. It's almost this little wink and a nod to say, go in here. Go in here from Simon or his sons, Alexander and Rufus, about these events. This is what follows. Simon of Cyrene was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. And in this moment, Simon Simon does what Jesus has invited his disciples to do all along. And explicitly since chapter 8, where where Jesus says this, and Mark here, he's double dipping on the language. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, my apprentice, whoever wants to follow me, must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. 
And that language, take up their cross, is the identical language that Mark's employing here in Mark 15. And so it's not just the language that's challenging, the scene itself is challenging. And I think that's why we encounter in various translations like that of the ESV, uh, things that are different. See, in the ESV, we see that Simon is compelled to pick up the cross. But it seems more likely that Simon didn't choose the cross. It was chosen for him. He was pressed into service. When this language is used elsewhere, this is this idea of a courier being forced into service, a, a Roman soldier coming along and saying, go with me one mile. And Jesus would say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 41, he would say, go with him too. If you are forced into service, that's what's, being hap- that's what's happening here. And this is what makes it so challenging because Simon is being forced into service and yet he looks like the first genuine disciple who's literally picking up the cross. So, is this really the same as Jesus' invitation in Mark 8? Is Simon of Cyrene really a model of discipleship to Jesus? Scholars are kind of split on the matter, and R.T. France in his commentary on Mark thinks it's actually inappropriate to call Simon a disciple, and yet he also submits the following. He says, but Mark's readers may well have found in his action a striking illustration of the costly identification with the suffering Messiah which Jesus' earlier saying had called for. I think for us, um, maybe you've never thought about this, and so all of a sudden like we're unearthing things here together, but, f- but for us, we like neat and tidy, don't we? We, we like a, a question to be asked and an answer to follow. And Mark's not necessarily interested in providing tidy responses to our questions. See, things like this, moments like this with Simon, they start to ask more questions than they answer. So we just have to wonder, like, why the cross? What is it about the cross that is so central to following Jesus? Why is it provocative that Simon picks it up? I mean, it's likely that Jesus, through this like excruciating night, doesn't have the energy to pick up the cross. So there's, I don't think we should input theological information into that. But what is it about this man picking up a cross and following Jesus that activates discipleship in our imaginations? Verse 22. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And just a, a side note on that, the, the myrrh seems to be this anesthetic. Um, when mixed with wine, it would take the edge off. And some think that this is to prolong the suffering, um, that is to limit the agony on the cross and thereby increase the enjoyment for the soldiers there, increase the shame, increase the mockery. Jesus' refusal, however, strikes a chord, at least with me as I'm reading this, and I wonder if Jesus here in this moment is keeping a promise. This promise that he would not drink again from the vine until he drank of it in the kingdom of God. If so, and and maybe it's wishful thinking, but if so, what we see here in Jesus' refusal to take the the myrrh with, with the wine is this hopeful resilience of Jesus. That, that the cross in his imagination is not the end. 
See, all along, the reality that we encounter with Jesus is one who is secure in the Father's love. And, and this is um, this is interesting cinema, right? So Mark is, is building up the tension. So, so what's happening? Oh my gosh, Jesus just denied them. He denied it. What, what is this? Is, is he like, is, is he being really strong? What is this? These are the questions Mark is drawing us to. But then verse 24 happens, and they crucified him. And that's like all we get. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of charge against him read the king of the Jews. It's like this sign over him is meant to lampoon Jesus, just to add in, insult to injury. And, and it, although it's a continuation of, of the mockery, again, it's this strategic moment where Jesus' kingship is realized on the cross. Like the, this is his coronation. And Mark reminds us that the shape of God's kingdom and therefore God's citizenry, those who follow Jesus in the kingdom of God, are formed by the cross. This is odd. Right? Like we, we would expect something more. We actually will see that as, as we go on. You see, in verse 27, we read, They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And these rebels, the word there is laystace. These would be the daggermen. These would be the zealots who hide up in the hills and shank those Roman soldiers as they're cruising down. These are the rebels, the insurrectionists that are going on Jesus' right and left. And this is so interesting, literarily, that phrase right and left kind of triggers something in our imaginations in the gospel according to Mark. And if you recall James and John earlier, who Jesus elsewhere will call the sons of thunder, not a compliment. Earlier in the narrative, James and John, they appeal to Jesus saying, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Which is such a, it's such a, like an honest approach to Jesus and resonates, I think, with so much. Jesus, do whatever I ask. <laughs> And so Jesus receives their request. We want you, Jesus, to give us the positions of highest status in your kingdom. Give us your right and your left hand. And Jesus essentially says, you don't know what you're asking. By the way, it's not even mine to give. Um, but can you drink this cup? And they're like, absolutely. And he's like, well, you will. Uh, this is the cup. This is the place of prominence in a cross-shaped kingdom. See, this is what it looks like to be on Jesus' right and left. It's just like, what? if this is what following Jesus looks like, it makes me want to turn away, to turn aside. Like, I don't want the cross. It seems like no one gets it. In verse 29, we just see this even more. Like, those who passed by, they hurled insults at Jesus. They're shaking their heads and saying, so... You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those dagger men were heaping insults on him. And then the scene closes. And all this mockery, it misses the point. 
And I have to remind myself, and I hope you of the same thing, like this mockery misses the point. Come down, they cry. Save yourself. And these aren't like cries of like, Jesus, save yourself. It's mockery. And they miss that Jesus didn't come to save himself. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to give himself away in love. He says it elsewhere. He says he came as a ransom for many. That is why Jesus came. And all the while, those whom he, who Jesus desired to save, to to bring into life in the kingdom of God, are crying out for him to come down to save himself because that is their formula for flourishing. Save yourself. that call for self-preservation. And then what they don't get is that God's kingdom is a cross-shaped kingdom. And when I'm honest, like that is the most offensive thing to me. Because I can, I can receive the sentimentality of the cross. I can even be emotionally stirred by the sensationalism of the cross. I remember one of the first times I heard like, and like, that, the sensationalism of the cross. I'm like, everyone around me is crying. I'm an undergrad in college. I'm crying. And it's just like, it was the most intense moment. And then at the end, and it was like, and your sin held him there. And I know that in, in, in Hebrews, we encounter the author saying that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, that there was a reality of that. But it was like, whew, I don't know. Like that felt... Like looking back, that felt kind of manipulative. That felt kind of aggressive. See, I, and somehow I can, I can endure the, the sensationalism of the cross. I can endure the sentimentality of the cross. But the sobering reality of the cross is offensive. Because it's not about self-preservation. It's about self-emptying. You hear the rest of that line in Mark 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? See, these people standing around, they... They say they'll believe, these leaders of Israel, these devout religious men say they'll believe when they see Jesus save himself. But that notion is found nowhere in Jesus' life. It's found nowhere in the pages of the gospel according to Mark because that is the anti-gospel. To save ourselves is to lose our life. It's the opposite Belief or faith always precedes seeing. It's not the other way around. Because faith is like a window. See, it's not defined by the material, but by its ability to reveal what's on the other side. And what the follower of Jesus sees through faith is the God of all creation, the creator of the cosmos, who in love sent His only Son to bear in His body the penalty of sin. Notice this, God did not send Jesus to condemn Jesus. No, God sent Jesus to condemn sin in His body. There's a distinction there. 
Because in Jesus, there is no condemnation. See, Mark's gospel, and this might sound weird to you, so just bear with me. Mark's gospel is less about believing in Jesus, that, that is believing what Jesus said and did as some sort of like evidence unto belief. And it's more about a faith that gives way to following Jesus. And where does Jesus go? Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus does what he invites others to do. Do you realize how beautiful this is? Jesus never invites us into something that he himself would not do. That's why leadership with Jesus and leadership that we, Lord willing, will live into in this church is never about coercion. It's always about invitation. So Jesus says, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. And what does Jesus do? He empties himself, as Paul will say this, he, he empties himself, he denies himself, he goes to the cross. See, for Mark, this faith, it looks a lot more like self-denial than self-preservation because that's where life resides. There's no spectacle, no sentiment, just the reality that life is found in the wake of the cross. And for you and for me, this is literal before it's metaphorical. So, so this call of Jesus, it extends to you and to me, and it is literal before it is metaphorical. That is the cross in the wake of Jesus must be how we identify with Jesus. It's not like the cross and picking up your cross, and we all have a cross to pick up. That, that's not for the super Christian or the mature Christian. That's for the Christian. To follow Jesus is started, it starts with picking up your cross. And if you know your church history, this is actually played out. Jesus, his disciples, they all live in the wake of the cross, and 11 of the 12 are martyred. Peter, according to tradition, is crucified upside down because he doesn't want to be crucified like his Lord. In our time and our social location, it is, it's very unlikely that we will have to literally pick up a cross and follow Jesus, but increasingly so, we will have the social degradation, the ostracization, the just simple maligning. People throw shade at you for following Jesus. In the marketplace, it will cost you something to live according to the ethic of Jesus expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. It'll cost you something to love your enemy. It'll cost you something to, to not lie, cheat, or steal to get there. It'll cost you something not to, to like avoid the, the reality of evil to get the good. And according to Jesus, life comes in the wake of that. You see, that will feel like death, but that is not the end. The cross leads us to Jesus. See, he says in the wake of picking up our cross, and some of us like stop there in our apprenticeship to Jesus. It's like drudgery and duty. And so we stop following Jesus, but that's not following Jesus. We pick up our cross and we follow Jesus because the cross actually has a climax. It's death, which in reality is this anti-climax because 
Jesus doesn't stay dead. Death does all that it can do to Jesus. It kills him, but in the power of God, Jesus is raised from the dead. And so we participate with Jesus in his death through the cross so that we might participate with Jesus in his life through the power of God. There is power in the cross to reveal, to reveal that death does not have the final word in God's good world. So we go to the cross. Why the cross? Because life comes in the wake of it which means that life comes when we follow Jesus. Following Jesus isn't absent of hardship. <laughs> it's like, I think I've encountered more hardship in following Jesus. And what I mean by that is I've actually seen more of who I truly am. Because doesn't it seem like that's the invitation that Jesus extends? He wants us to be who we truly are, not who we project out into the world, not who we pretend to be on social media, but who we truly are through our gender and our temperament and our stage of life. He wants more of that. He wants who you, he he loves that. He delights in that. And what he knows is that those things we project out there, those personas, what you could call the flesh, those places of self-preservation, they keep us from the cross because self-preservation says avoid the cross. But that is the anti-gospel. That is not the good news. The good news is that life comes in the wake of the cross. See, to close, the Apostle Paul famously says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And hear that, who are being saved, this ongoing, continuing action, the reality is, is that Jesus in the wake of the cross continues to bring life. That is the goodness we get to sit in. You see, in a culture of self-actualization and instant gratification, we just, I wonder like, what could the cross have to say to us? Well, the cross says again that death does not have the final word. Jesus died not so that we don't have to, but to actually show us how to die so that we might live. The cross isn't just something that Jesus did past tense. It's like something that we are doing that he is empowering us to pick up. So we're not doing it by ourselves. We pick up our cross and we follow Jesus, which means we are experiencing the felt presence of God as we pick up that burden. And the beauty is you're not doing this alone. Right now, you very well may be watching this by yourself or listening to this as a podcast and that's beautiful and praise God for the, like, the gospel going forth. That's fantastic. Yeah. But if you were doing this isolated from community, you are missing the direction of the cross. See, the kingdom is a gathering of God's people, not a bunch of siloed people who are declaring their own iterations of Jesus. Those are a thousand walls keeping us from him. Faith is the window through which we see him most clearly. What's interesting is that the cross to many feels like an obstacle to faith, but the cross is actually an invitation to trust. So I just want to extend that to you afresh. 
See, we're right here smack dab near the end of the Lenten season, approaching Easter, this, this moment where Jesus is said to not stay dead. And I just wonder, do we believe that faith actually gives us the ability to see, or are we still crying out, come down, save yourself, and I'll believe? See, perhaps today, perhaps this moment is a moment for Jesus to knock down those walls, to awaken faith so that you can see him clearly. Just a minute, what walls have you fabricated? What what gold-gilded images of Jesus are you holding up because you're offended by the cross? The invitation of Jesus is to see him. Our cross is empty. The grave is empty. He is risen. We are moving toward that. But no doubt, there is no resurrection without a cross. There is no answer to sin without the cross. So let us see the sober reality of it. Let's pray. Jesus, have mercy. Have mercy, we pray. Give us the confidence to come to you, to pick up our cross knowing that we are not alone in that. Like Simon carried it, you do this work of of carrying this with us through the life of the church. Call us, lead us, fill us afresh, we pray in your name. Amen.